0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Stephen McGinty. He's an author, journalist, and documentary producer. We are talking about the world's deepest submarine rescue. In 1973, two British men, Roger Chapman and Roger Mallinson, were 1,500 feet below the surface, laying transatlantic telephone cables in the Pisces III submarine. What happened next is one of the longest, most dangerous, complex, and daring rescues ever attempted as America, Canada, Ireland and Britain marshalled their forces in the air and beneath the sea to save the two men, all while their oxygen, food, and power was rapidly running out. This story is so cool. Stephen's done like an insane amount of research for it. And to be honest, I really enjoy changing up the content that we put out and the sort of stories and guests that come on Modern Wisdom. Like it's it's great, you know, learning personal development and getting new skills and finding hacks and stuff about life. But I just enjoy learning and reminiscing and finding out about crazy experiences that other people have had. You know, you don't need to, there's no pressure to remember the things. No one's going to quiz you. It's not going to make a difference to your life, whether or not you can recall the names of the men and where their position was off the coast of Ireland. But it's just an awesome story that you can relax to. And Stephen has like the most perfect Scottish accent for telling a naval submarine rescue story that I've ever heard. So yeah, enjoy this one. Sit back and relax. On a similar note, I wanted to say thank you to everyone who continues to support the show and share the episodes and gas me up or send me messages or retweet stuff that I post on Twitter. Like It is so meaningful. It's it's insane how sensible and radically curious everyone that listens to this is. And it just continues to blow me away. Like the show's growing so much faster than I could have thought every single time that we set targets, we blast through them. Uh, So thank you. Thank you for whatever it is that you're doing to help support it. Something's going right and long may it continue. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So, to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite demand Netsuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks head to netsuite.com modern right now that's netsuite.com modern but now it's time to learn about the world's deepest submarine rescue with stephen mcginsey Stephen McGinty, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: We are talking about the world's deepest submarine rescue today.
1: Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. It's the subject of my new book, The Dive, which is the, the untold story of the world's deepest submarine rescue. And, yeah, it's an, it's an incredible story from a kind of from the analogue age of 1973. Um, it's, yeah, the, I mean, the, the, the background to it um, is effectively that, um, just to, to get people kind of uh, in the mood, it's, it's really from the time when, uh, in 1973, when um, new phone lines were laid down and there was what's known as the Cantat um, cable was laid between Canada and the United Kingdom. And this was, this was high technology. You know, This was a cable that allowed 1,750 phone calls to be made from the entirety of America and Canada to the UK at any one time. So this was the days when it would be like £3.50 a minute to make a phone call transatlantic. Um, But this was the cable. In fact, this new cable was three times what previous cables had done. Um, And and what what was happening at the time was that the cable had been laid, um, but these miniature submarines, this Pisces III, um, was being sent down to do a a simple but very important job, which was um, to find the cable and to dig a little ditch so that the cable would then settle into the ditch and then be covered over by sand and silt. The idea being that while it was on the surface, I mean, this was um, 150 miles off the coast of Cork, so it was it was in the, the Atlantic Ocean, um, but it was still in an area where people were fishing, and the, the fear was that um, nets would be, would go down or, or trawlers, and effectively the cable could be hauled back up. And as I said in the book, you know, Murphy's Law does apply um, within 150 miles of Ireland. And the fear was that they could—they obviously needed to, to tackle that. So, so on the day back in August 1973, um, there was two men in this, this small Paisies three uh, mini-submersible. There was um, Roger Chapman and there was Roger Mallinson. Uh, Roger Chapman was ex-Royal uh, Navy. He was an ex-nuclear uh, submariner. Um, who had who'd effectively had to leave the services because his, his eyesight wasn't as good as it, it should have been. And he moved into the, into the private sector. And at the time, um, what was interesting about it was it was the company that ran the submarines was, was Vickers Oceanics. Um, now, Vickers, uh, is anyone from Barrow and Furness and anyone who knows about the great kind of um, nautical history of Britain will know, Vickers was the, 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 the titan of, sort of shipbuilders and particularly, um, you know, military and sort of um, naval ships um, from the, the First World War, Second World War and into the Cold War. Um, so what they did was that they would obviously make these massive ships, but they decided that um, it was 1973, there had been the boom in the North Sea oil industry, and they decided miniature submarines were going to be uh, an effective gadget, effectively, that the industry would have been needed. Uh, and this little miniature submarine um, had been invented by these these incredible Canadians. Um, there was a guy called Alf Trice. Uh, and Al Trice, back in the 19, early 1960s, was, was from Vancouver. And he was one of the pioneers of, of, he was a great salvage diver. Those were the days where you wore hard hats. You went down with kind of heavy steel boots. And he pioneered some of the deepest dives. I mean, they were doing bounce dives in those days. So that basically meant that you would you would go down as many as, as deep as maybe 350 feet, but you could be down there for literally two or three minutes, and then you would take these long, slow ascents to the surface to avoid the bends. Altri said, look, this isn't there has to be a practical device. There has to be let's let's develop a submarine that that's small, that's commercial. Um, The the French had developed the bathyscope, which had gone down right down to the Kinnemaranara Trench, effectively. Um, But he wanted to to develop, effectively, a a commercial submarine. And these guys, who could come into the story later on, effectively what they did was they developed, they spent their money, they they, they pioneered and created the Pisces um, craft. And what was interesting about Pisces um, miniature submarine was that they tested it in Vancouver on a day that the U.S. Navy were testing anti-submarine missiles. And what I find fascinating about Pisces, the, the Pisces craft, was that that uh, the, 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 it managed on its test dive, it managed to evade a missile that had been sent out, with, with, whose principal job was effectively to track down um, submarines. And there's something about it that, that says that this thing was 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 maybe indestructible, but also lucky. Um,
0: so talk us through the craft. What's uh, Pisces yeah, three? How big is it Pisces, inside? What does yeah, it have?
1: More, well, well, the way I the way I kind of. Um, when I told people about this 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 book was was essentially to try and imagine um, that you are you and your friend are in a large phone box, that's the way to think of it. Uh, and the way that I kind of sold it to people was: imagine that you're in a small, uh, you're in a, a phone box, and the phone box is s- sitting slap bang next to the Empire State Building, and then you watch as the Atlantic Ocean rolls in to a height ten stories above the top of the the, the Empire State Building. Um, so that's the kind of. Um, that, I mean, the size of it was was pretty com- compact, so five or six feet in diameter, um, but you know enough to move around. in, but you know you, you got you got you got pretty close. All right. So um, s-
0: set the scene. We're on the day of this occurring. Yeah. What are, what's Roger and Roger doing, and why? Well, how do they get down there? Well,
1: what they what they did is they so um, on the surface was at the the kind of the mothership, which is effectively a converted a large converted trawler called um, the Vicar Voyager. Um, so that was on the surface and that was um that was operating at sort of twenty four hours a day. The Pices um submarine was on deck and they around about at one one o'clock in the morning um they climbed into the submarine um it was winched over the edge it was then dropped down into the water then it was towed out to a certain point and and what was interesting at the time was that what they would do is they would attach um like a like a a buoy to uh, the, the surface, and then they would attach a rope to the submarine, and then the submarine would, would descend um, right down to the bottom, so 1,500, 1,600 feet to the bottom, and then they would, on the surface, they would follow this buoy um, as it went along, so that was, if you think about Jaws, that's effectively what it was like when, when they fired the the, the barrels into the, into the Great White, that's effectively what they were doing with the submarine. Um, so they go down to the bottom, they spend eight or nine hours on the on the bottom um, digging this little trench and watching the cable drop in. And they had a tape recorder down there. And um, Roger, when he was down there, Roger Mallinson, liked to listen to Now, this was 1973. So this was the year of um, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. There was all sorts of great albums released ni- in 1973. But Roger Mallinson liked to listen to to, to Mozart and Bach's um, um organ music. He always insisted that the sound, because of the sphere, the sound inside the submarine was was fantastic. And uh, that's what he used to listen to. He was a kind of, he is an eccentric character, Roger, like a a great man. Um, So the two of them were down there, and then after about eight or nine hours, they they, um, rose to the surface. Um, And then what happened was a, a big fluke. They get to the surface, and then the 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 team that come out on on a kind of little um, craft and they tow it, they begin to tow it back in. What happens is uh, a rope is used to tow them. It knots over the back of the the submarine um, and the the rope knots round a bolt on the aft sphere, which is the the, the back of the submarine. And unfortunately uh, that's not covered and the bolt is tightened and the pressure inside the, the aft sphere, it, basically flips open. So suddenly they're on the surface and the, the aft sphere, which is the back of the, the submarine, but which is not connected, although it's, although it's part of the submarine, there's no, um, there's, it, it's solid effectively between that and the actual compartment where the men are. But what happens is a tonne of water suddenly floods into the back of the, the aft sphere. So the submarine is incredibly over, overweighted and immediately begins to, to tip butt first and begins to sink down. Now, the key point here is that before this happened, they disconnected the boy. Um, so the the, the 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 boy that told them where the submarine was had been disconnected. The
0: position mark is no longer there.
1: Exactly, exactly. So the submarine falls. First, first of all, it drops to 160 feet, which is where the, the, the end of the tow rope is. So the tow rope catches it, but they know there's no way the tow rope can withstand the weight. So Roger and um, Allinson and Roger Chapman are, are desperately trying to to, to drop to to drop a a kind of heavy weight that's attached to the submarine to try and lighten the load to buy themselves a bit more time. Let's talk of a of a diver trying to get down to to, to attach a, a rope to it. But then what happens is just as they've managed to get this weight off, there's a massive crack, and the the weight drops, but also the rope snaps, and suddenly they're plummeting, um, right down to the bottom. And Roger talked about how the 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 water being driving through the engines sounded like a Stuka dive bomber, so it, they're plummeting down. um Roger they're trying to sort of um get everything out of the way because they know they're gonna crash land on the bottom. Um Roger tells them to start uh, Roger Mallinson remembers that it's it's just in case they they bite their tongue off with the impact. they stuff rags in their mouth um and then they finally hit the bottom.
0: Bang, what sort of speeds on. are they going when they do that?
1: Well, it's about. I mean, it's a question. It was it, it, initially they thought it would be like, you know, twenty, thirty miles an hour, but I'm not sure it was as, it was as, it was as fast as that. Um, but it was certainly enough that they were, they were fearful that it could it could crack open. But what happens is they smash down onto the onto the bottom, and suddenly they're in pitch darkness. Um, and initially they were waiting, thinking so they knew they were on the bottom. Um, they knew they were deeper than any other submarine who'd been rescued, um, and. The first thing they were fearful of was, A, was the cracks in the submarine. Um, so they checked there's no cracks in the submarine. The next thing they're fearful of is that although they know they have they have oxygen supply down there, the key problem in a submarine is effectively not the oxygen that you're breathing in, but the carbon dioxide that you're breathing out. So they know that they have a scrubber, which is effectively like a little electric motor, which scrubs out the, the, the oxygen. It sucks the, the oxygen in, scrubs it takes out the carbon dioxide, and then they bleed in oxygen back into the chamber so it maintains a a safe atmosphere effectively. But they can only do that if the batteries are working. And also they're fearful that if there's a a problem with one of the fuses or with the cables on the battery, that it could ignite. Um, And obviously there had been the fire on board um, one of the Apollo missions, just a few years previous to that, but that's a major concern that they could trigger a fire. That and they could them. have
0: one of the wires could have been broken during the fall or something like that. Exactly,
1: exactly, and it could trigger a fire and and then you know they're 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 gone.
0: Weren't they only a, a small distance from some huge ledge in the sea floor that would have dropped them down to some insane depth?
1: Well, that was the that was the concern. They were, they were they thought they were maybe within a half a mile or a mile of of that, but they didn't know how far they they they, they drifted, because that was the key point. Was that there was the kind of the current was quite strong and they were drifting as they fell. So yeah, the concern was when they were falling, they were looking at the 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 100, depth going up 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, and they didn't know that they knew that they were their deepest. They were at seventeen hundred feet when they were operating. And they thought had they gone deeper than that, then they would have been, in. I mean, I think it would have dropped down to about 3,000 feet. Um, but, you know, one break, that didn't happen. But they are, when they they realise what's happening, they're at, they're at you know, 1650 feet. Um, and, I mean, that, the, the way I, as I say, described it was trying to imagine that you're in a, a phone box next to the Empire State Building. Um, and then the Atlantic Ocean sweeps in, then all the lights go out then you start bleeding oxygen. Then you know that rescue is at least two days away. Um, and what you've got to do is preserve your oxygen as
0: long as you can. Why do they know that it's at least two days away? Because this is the
1: problem. And this is what what, what makes the, the rescue um, such an incredible feat. Above them is Vickers Voyager. And the only way that they can be rescued is for a diver can't get down to that depth. So the only way is for another submarine to get down to that depth and attach a rescue rope. Now, the submarines that are capable of doing that is, is Pisces 2, which is in the North Sea, Pisces 5, which is in um, Canada, and also the Curve, which is run by the US Navy, which is a remote-controlled um, miniature submarine, which had been used a number of years before, or maybe four or five years before. To pick up an a an, an bomb, which had, which had, um, there had been a plane crash above Spain. One of these bombs had dropped and off the Spanish coast, and it was a curve that had been sent down to finally find the submarine. That that's not find. So I mean, find the bomb and bring it to the surface. So as they are sitting there, they know that the only thing that can rescue them is a submarine, which is either of you know, the North Sea, Canada, or the United States, um, and that the submarine, sorry, the the, the safety vessel above them, the Vickers Voyager that has to leave them go back to Cork um, to pick up these teams. but effectively what happens is they're on the, they on the seabed and then a massive international rescue is put into into operation um, Vickers at Oceanic at the time was one of the general managers there was was Peter Misery. He was ex- navy and he himself had been stuck in, a, in the submarine. Um, six hundred or so, six hundred feet down in Vancouver during a test um, a few years before. So he knew exactly what they were going through. Um, and at the time, what they did was they put in a, a kind of a, a rescue operation, which was belt and braces, and then belts again. So they got the submarines from the North Sea. They got that on a on a, a, a another vessel, and they started steaming back into port. They contacted the Canadians and said. We're going to have to to get you guys over. And what was great was that Al Trice, who who devised and invented effectively the Pisces uh, submarine, he was he was actually in in London at the time, um. So he was able to take part in the rescue as well. But he contacted the or the the the, uh, the Canadians were contacted, and they basically swung into action. They loaded everything up onto trucks and contacted the Canadian Air Force. And the Canadian Air Force said, "Look, don't worry about the paperwork. We've got a Hercules." Aircraft ready for you, and just whenever you can get to the the, the airport, we'll have this Hercules ready.
0: Didn't what's isn't it a sub smash or something? Wasn't there like some yeah huge red button that somebody pressed that marshals the entire world's forces to try and help?
1: Yeah, yeah. There was a, that was the Royal Navy that can sub smash, which is which is basically there's a submarine in in, in in trouble, and all help is available. But effectively, what what was interesting was it was the it was the um, Vickers. Canadians and the Americans and the Americans were all based in San Diego so they did the same thing they rushed to, to the raid loaded up um, two um, Hercules aircrafts and within it' was probably I think it was within 1012 hours um, you've got these these Hercules aircraft one flying from San Diego one flying from um, Canada and the other team arriving in from into Cork so then what you have is uh, Vickers the, the the venture uh, uh, on the on the surface has to leave them um another fishing vessel comes and stays on the point because the point is they don't know that they, as i've said in the book they know roughly where they are i.e they know there's a haystack they just don't know where the needle is um so the the, the vessels because they'd lost that cor- boy they'd lost yeah, the locator yeah, boy yeah yeah, exactly. yeah yeah so they had to to have uh, back to cork and um that's effectively where the, the the Voyager was was laden with the, with the two submarines.
0: So back down in the submarine, what do the Rogers do now? They they land there and then they decide to test the batteries and what are the resources <coughs> yeah. they need to balance? What do they do yeah. now?
1: Yeah, well, effectively, what they do is they they know that um, the, the scrubbers operating, so that they know that they can take the carbon, um, sorry, the carbon dioxide out the out the atmosphere and um, they replace it with kind of oxygen so that's okay they um, have got to keep the batteries going and they know that initially the the, the way it was op- the way they, they operated was the oxygen they had down there if they were acting normally chatting moving about that would probably last uh, 30 35 hours but the the estimate was that if they just lay down remained as silent as possible remained as calm as possible they could extend that till about sort of, 65 70 hours which was the kind of roughly when the operation, I mean, if they could get there, they figured they could get there within maybe 50 hours. So it was incredibly stressful um, and incredibly tense.
0: In a time um, when they need to specifically be as calm, calm. as possible, low Absolutely. heart rate, low breathing rate.
1: Absolutely. Uh, and uh, Roger Mallinson always said that, that he, if he had to be stuck in a submarine with anyone, he was so glad it was Roger Chapman because Roger Chapman was ex-Navy. And both of them were terrified. But both of them had that stiff British upper lip, which is, I'm terrified, but I'm fine. I'm absolutely fine. And I'm going to operate as if I'm fine. So they they Um, moved. They were were internalizing it.
0: Yeah, yeah. They moved the entire sort of, they feng shuied the whole internal compartment around so that they only needed to move a tiny amount to check on yeah, the, the few yeah. different bits and pieces. Yeah, they,
1: they, they moved the, what they could they effectively, could, because of the, the way they, the way the submarine had landed, which is kind of butt first into the sand, they had to move their kind of benches um, around. And then they reconfigured it effectively so that they could fit, they, they moved the minimum amount as possible um, so that it was just as, as easy as possible for them.
0: How are they communicating with the surface
1: well there's a, there's there's an underwater telephone um which is effectively what they what they used, and what was interesting about it was I mean it was very staticky uh, and very kind of you, you could hear, but what was fascinating was that there was a lot of porpoises and dolphins in the area, and the dolphins would 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 squeak and they would as, as Roger Mallinson said, you would lose messages to the dolphins because you know they would be making this kind of noise and he didn't mind it so much because he loved the dolphins Um, but they, that was another another element of it but they could they could yeah it was effectively like an underwater radio
0: um that was was operating so they had a timer thing right they were doing something every yeah, half an yeah. hour tell us about yeah, that yeah
1: exactly well effectively what they what the the the, the, the 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 best practice was effectively to operate the scrubber every 30 minutes um, so that it would take out the kind of carbon dioxide from the from the atmosphere. Um, but what they did was and they had a timer to do that so that they would either if they fell asleep or they would always do it, the timer would go off. But effectively, what they did was, they, in order to maintain the the, the, the scrubber, to, so that the chemicals that they could only replace a certain amount of time, um, in order to, to extend that, they started pushing it further and further. So, it, in, in ideal situations, they would do it every half an hour. But sometimes they would do it; they would go an hour, ninety minutes without doing it, in order to kind of uh, maintain the resources as long as possible.
0: What were the effects of being down there? Because I imagine cold, condensation. Cold.
1: Cause it, well, the, 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 the food supplies were very limited. They had like one sandwich. They had a tin of Corona lemonade. They had a flask, a half a flask of, co- of coffee. They had some ship's biscuits. Um, and, and that was it. What and about water? No water? No water. No water. Which, yeah, which is incredible. But the, yeah, so what they started doing was that the condensation that built up on the edge of the submarine, they would run their hands down that and they would kind of dab their lips um that way so it was um it it was it was a tough environment
0: half a canister of coffee was it like a cheese and plowman sandwich or something
1: yeah yeah because Malinson had jam sandwiches which he'd eaten
0: and then a a tin of lemonade yeah Yeah, and some some condensation
1: yeah yeah and that's i mean that's what you've got for um for, for three days
0: how long i mean three days must be close to the hydration limit for humans yeah
1: yeah, I mean it was it was something that they were they, they were yeah it was it was kind of tough for them, but they managed to get what they could from the um, from the from the walls of the of the submarine.
0: Okay, and so then, we've got we've got them down there. Yeah, they're, they're trying to stay as still as they can. Every half an hour to every hour, they're waking up to play around with the oxygen, leak the oxygen back in, also scrub the CO two out. Yeah. What's happening on the surface?
1: Well, on the on the surface, the first thing is. Um, Voyager finally gets another ship to maintain position on the surface. Then Voyager sails 13, 14 hours back to Cork. Um, By that time, the Pisces submarine that was in the North Sea has been brought over to Cork. They wait for the the Pisces from Canada to arrive by Hercules. They unload that. They get that onto um, the, the Voyager. And then, what's interesting? Two things that are interesting. Al Trice is delayed in getting over to Cork, um, so the captain of, of Voyager said, "We're not waiting for him." So they sail off, and then what happens is Trice has to be helicoptered out into the into the the, the Atlantic, and then lowered down onto the. Um, onto voyager fact, there's no know,
0: helipad think, on voyager there's no
1: helipad on voyager they're lowered down but and also what's happening is, is when i found the logs from vickers voyagers or sorry from the, the vickers company there's a lovely line where it says something like 12:30 altrice dropped full stop onto voyager brackets gently full stop <laughs> because it gave the indication they they just dropped them on. But it was the brackets gently that I really... Again, that's the beauty of of when you're writing a book. You find these little pieces of paperwork and um, it gives you an an indication of it. So what happened then was the the Americans were delayed. So the Americans, because they were obviously flying from the West Coast, they were were delayed. So they get in to Cork about 10 hours later and um, they have to wait. Because of the tidal effect... um, their 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 ship is put onto another ship and they are effectively they're they're ten hours behind um Vicar Voyager. So Voyager gets back to the the, the the scene of the accident on the late on the early hours of Friday morning. So they are there so forty hours later they are on the scene and then effectively there's a great line which says how do you make God laugh and it's tell him your plans um, because what happened was, uh, Miss Avery had an idea that they would get to the point um, they would send down a sub, the, one of the, the Pisces submarines, and they would hook them up, get them to the surface. Now, the was they would be up by breakfast. So, first thing goes wrong is they try and um, get their out their um, these kind of inflatable crafts that, that you know, just inflatable kind of uh, boats that would take them out to the roughly the site where they think that the, the boy the submarine sinks. But the first engine doesn't work. The second engine doesn't work. Eventually, they have to get another engine sent over um, from one of the naval vessels, um, and that's just to tow out um, the, the Pisces craft. Now they make a decision. They're, they're going down with a, a heavy, with a rope um, bound onto a kind of like a clamp, like a kind of claw, effectively at the front of the Pisces. And they make a decision that they want the rope to be of a certain buoyancy, the idea being that it would float up above them and would would be less likely to become entangled. The problem is that submarine goes down, and it's piloted by a great guy called Dias Darcy, and it goes down, down, down. The problem is the deeper it goes, the greater the buoyancy on the rope. And effectively what happens is they get down to about 1,300 feet, and the buoyancy of the rope, the tension on that starts pulling on the claw. And effectively go pit to about fourteen hundred feet and then it gives so not only does the rope and with the hook pull out of the claw, but it mangles the claw. So they're in a position where they no longer have a rope and they no longer have a working claw on this submarine. The decision's made to send down the submarine anyway in an attempt to try and find uh Pisces, but after a few hours, A they can't find it. And no, then that's the other thing. At some point that, that Pisces that submarine springs a leak. Uh, or there's a tension on board. So they have to go back up to the surface. So that's the first dive, which was deemed to be, the idea would be that it would be very successful, but that doesn't work. So then they bring on board the Canadians. So Al Trice and his team, and another Pisces uh, submarine um, there towed out, and dive two goes down to the bottom. The problem is it gets down to the bottom and it's there for eight hours and it can't find Pisces three
0: how are they doing that just si- simply by sight shine no, a light
1: by, by, but no by, by by sonar effectively so what happens is they've got they've got a sonar down there and um they're, they're kind of trying they're scanning they're tw- twisting around and they're scanning trying to find it and at one point they get a ping but the but the, what, what effectively it is is when they look at the scale of it they realize that that they're they're one mile away so uh, under the water at that distance with that kind of parameter, it's you know, it's difficult. If, if you were if you if you, you were maybe five, six, seven hundred feet away, it would still be tough to find it to get it to the point where you could actually illuminate it. Um so they're down there for, for eight hours, no luck. They go back to the surface. Um, at this point the claw is being worked on in the other submarine, they go back down again. And what they do is they get um Roger Chapman to sing. At one point Chapman's singing this made up song in the hope that they can um, hear them um the idea is the higher notes might help so, so chapman's singing away and um they get the team in the in the canadian submarine um are are desperately trying to sort of, you know find exactly the right spot and eventually they, what is a combination of 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 both malinson and chapman Hearing a, a directional change on 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 their kind of underwater telephone, so th- so it's a combination of them thinking they've made some kind of change on the Canadians' uh, ship and the Canadians thinking, right, we've we've locked onto them.
0: Can they the communicate po- with the Canadians?
1: Yeah, well, this is the thing. It, they can at some point. It's um, and because at one point. Um, chat keeps keeps um, keeps talking, and the Canadians at one point saying, "Quiet, please, quiet, please." And Mallinson starts getting pissed off, pardon the language, um, because of this is this is what's what's happened. And the other thing that annoys the the Chapman and Mallinson is that the Canadians are talking about meters, and these guys are saying, "Well, what, what you know, we're dealing in feet here. We have to deal in <laughs> we have to deal in feet." So it's like the old world and the new world kind of clashing. Um, so eventually, at one point they finally realise they lock on to where they think they are. And Mallinson is looking up at the porthole, um, which is almost like a skylight at that point because of the way the, the submarine um, is facing. And what they're looking for is they're looking out into just a wash of blackness. Um, but what they're waiting for is, is is for light to come because the idea being that the, the other submarine has has lights on it. And it, if, they, if, they, if, they, if they basically, if the blackness out there starts to illuminate then they know they're, they're going to be found, so eventually what happens is they see light in the water and they realise that um, Pisces Five that the Canadians have found them, and they think fantastic. So what happens is the Canadians position their their submarine really close to Pisces, and what they're trying to do is they've got a, a device that they're trying to sort of hook onto onto the the top of the rope, so the top of the of the submarine, and um, they're positioning it with their hook, and as I've described it in the book, it's effectively like threading a needle wearing a suit of armor. Um, but they've done it before; they're good at it. This is what they do. But what happens is they put the hook into the into the eye at the top of, of Pisces three, and they think they've locked on. So for a second, effectively, they've got this this rope with the lifting strength to get them up, and. It's locked on, but then in a, again a one in a thousand misfortune, it just falls out. It it spins round effectively and drop and drops out of sight. So there's a situation where they have to spin round the submarine, which bangs Pisces three, and they're trying to chase this rope as it drifts away. And as I've said, it's like it's like a, a pensioner's race because the rope is just drifting very slowly, like a balloon caught in a breeze. But they can only move very slowly and they're desperately trying to kind of catch it before it goes away. Because if it drifts out of, out of arm reach effectively, if they miss it, they're going to have to go back to the surface, which is which is a few hours, find it, retool, get back down again. The bottom line is they get down, but the problem is they can't get it back onto the lift point. The only thing they can do is fit it onto a grill, which is over one of the propellers, which a allows them to know exactly where the submarine is. But won't support the weight.
0: Oh, so they would use that as kind of like a Minotaur's maze uh, yeah. way to follow it down. It might not have the buoy attached to the top, but all that you would do in future is now send a submarine, okay, just track with track this in rope. sight, down, yeah, down, yeah, down, down, yeah. down, down. Okay. The
1: problem is, but the, but the, but the major problem is it, it, doesn't, it won't support the weight of the submarine, so they can't lift.
0: What about the Roger and Roger at the moment? Have they not needed to go to the bathroom? Have they not been well, struggling with stuff thing. like yeah, that? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. They've, they've, they've no choice. I mean, it's it's not it's not pretty, but in the book we have to describe how how they have to go to the toilet, which is effectively just you know, I mean, they're it, without putting too fine a point on it, is defecating in a plastic bag and then putting the the, the bag inside a kind of a, a, a sealed metal biscuit tin um so that's that's <laughs> that, that's the reality
0: didn't it one of the lads told... have the runs as well hadn't he yeah, had a bad yeah. pie or something yeah well
1: that was it he'd been he'd been constipated for a while and he just could hold on no longer but it, it, as he said afterwards the relief afterwards was was was, was overwhelming um so that's what that's where, where they are the canadians have, have, have found them but the canadians eventually have to go back up
0: how many hours in are we here
1: Oh, we're about 50 hours, 55. You know, I mean, they're, 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 they're getting very close to the wire. Um, so then what happens is there's a, there's a, there's a third uh, trip down to try and get another, another rope on. Doesn't work. Um, they, they is that another the,
0: Pisces that time? That's, a, that's
1: another Pisces trip down. Um, so but basically what happens is by, by the Friday night, and they know that by Saturday lunchtime they're, they're out of oxygen, by Friday night, um, they still don't have a working lift line on, and then what's what? There's this great sequence whereby um, you've, you've got people like Ted Carter. Ted Carter is in Barrow and Furness, and Ted Carter is a kind of you know assistant technical manager, and he's communicating with Voyager on the on the radio, um, and he realizes that they are despondent, that they are exhausted, and that it isn't the rescue is not happening the way it should be. So he de- he decides that they should send out another team. Of, of kind of fresh men and he speaks to uh, leonard redshaw leonard redshaw was known as mr polaris because he effectively worked with the navy to design the polaris submarine he was a kind of real he was the you know britain shipbuilder effectively and he was in charge of dickers and his idea was we throw everything at this kind of rescue mission so he spoke to to leonard uh, redshaw and redshaw said yeah great put together a team so what happened is you've got this kind of like dirty dozen mission whereby um sorry ted puts together a team of, 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 kind of men, kind of engineers, divers, five of them. They are flown in the, in the, the, the sort of small private plane that, that Vickers have over to Cork. Um, the Royal Navy have got permission to fly into sort of Irish airspace, and the Irish have been very supportive of it. They touch down at Cork Airport. They run across the the, the, the tarmac, and they're loaded onto a, a Sea King um, helicopter. Problem is, um, the helicopter's got to fly 150 miles out, and there's a storm. So the weather's atrocious, the, none of these guys have been on a helicopter before. Um, um, so they're. And the, what happens is they fly out in the storm. And as one of the guys I was speaking to about it said, when they looked out, they, all they could see was white. They thought it was snow, but it was the tops of the waves just being whipped up by, by, by the weather. And they are at kind of 9, 10 at night. They are lowered down in the midst of this storm onto the deck of Voyager, which is thrashing about. And what happens is they get lowered down one at a time. But every time they're about to touch the deck, the, the voyager sinks into a wave. So they, are, they, they, they think they're about to touch the ground, but the ground just falls underneath them. And it's just this kind of amazing piece of piloting. In fact, the pilot had got in touch with me after, after the, the book came out and, and he was commended and you know, it's, it's for the piloting that was involved in that and keeping it steady and lowering these men down. So, so Ted gets down there uh, with his team um, on the Friday evening and he helps fix one of the submarines. And he goes down with Des Darcy um, to on the kind of early hours of Saturday morning, and it's Ted, effectively, who this guy who was in, in Baron in Furness, um, sort of you know twelve hours before, who who helps get the first actual lift line. But they they developed a toggle which is effectively like an upside down um, umbrella, and the idea would be that this would be fitted into the aft sphere, and like a T-bar, it would open out once it was in, and um, they managed to get the first one in. Um, But at at the same time, the Americans had got out there uh, finally. um, And and what, again, how do you make God laugh telling your plans? The idea was that they would launch first, that they had this high technology for 1973, um, remote-controlled submarine, effectively, that was like a kind of, as they said, it was like a dog on a leash, a well-trained dog on a leash that that could be sent down and had CCTV cameras fixed on it. Um and that was supposed to launch about eleven at night on the Friday night. And just as they're about to to power it up, it's a massive kind of you know power grid for it. What they didn't appreciate was when they'd been wiring it all up on the journey out, salt water and sea spray had contaminated all the circuits. So as soon as they pressed it up, as soon as effectively they powered it up, the whole thing just blew. So again, there's you know, submarines aren't working on on Voyager. The Americans are supposed to come and rescue everyone. Bang, they blew. And it was going to take four hours to rewire the entire system with everyone working at once. Um, And again, it's it's that kind of system whereby, because they had so many resources out there, granted, every system had its own problems. What happened was um, Ted goes down in Pisces, gets that lift line attached, but they realised that they need another lift line they, one's they, not going to be enough. Ones, well, it could potentially be enough, but it's too heavy to risk it. They, they want to get another Because if they drop down, it a
0: second time. Yeah, that's
1: it. They, they, they've, they've literally got one chance with the lift. So what they do is they, they, the Americans are finally brought in on about four, five in the morning. And what's fantastic is after everything that's gone wrong with every other attempt, the Americans goes absolutely like silk. It goes like clockwork. The curve is piloted down. By Larry Brady, who, who who sadly just died a couple of weeks ago, um, but he he pilots it, um, brings it down, and drops off the another toggle into the atmosphere. And as he described it to me, he said it was like it was like parking the car after a very very long drive, um, a drive of, of of effectively three days. Um, with, but it just goes that smoothly. So by ten o'clock in the morning. With they've got maybe they, they estimate they've got a few hours of oxygen left, but but potentially less. No one's got it has an absolute accurate account of how much oxygen's left. They're in the position where they're going to lift. And what a, is on, what, what are what Roger and one.
0: Roger like at this stage? What sort of physiological uh, state are they in?
1: Well, they're exhausted. They're they're stressed. They're imagining the worst. Uh, Mallinson is a, is a, is a, is what both are they're both amazing guys, but kind of um, Mallinson really knows the submarine, and he's he's constantly overthinking what they should be doing and trying to second-guess it, and Chapman's the one who's trying to sort of, um, you know, calm him down, just saying, look, Chapman's attitude is that there's nothing we can do here, but effectively try and be silent and breathe as little as possible, whereas Mallinson is effectively trying to second-guess and make suggestions about what they can do and really try and work out it. So when it becomes to, to, to time to lift the submarine, they are both internalising it but as they admitted afterwards terrified because in their heads they can't quite grasp what the toggle is they think is a hook and they, they're constantly worried that, the, that like a fish on a hook the fish is going to come off the, off the hook and initially what happens is when they start to lift it, there's something has been dragged along the surface um, and it's only after a certain point that it starts to lift up
0: it's until it and, gets to the plum straight line yeah, right exactly, below wherever
1: exactly. it is yeah. it's it it's it's up and the, as they said later on, the worst part of the entire experience was the lift, was those final two hours. Because what happened was that it was being lifted from a different ship this time. They transferred over to a kind of larger vessel that was going to, sort of, that was actually operating where, where Curve, the Americans, had been operating from. And what they did was they kind of moved over. Um, to the, the, um, the John Cabot. That was it. It was the Canadian Coast Guard. It was an icebreaker that they were moving off from that they, were, they, they or decided to, to, to operate the lift from. And what happened was that because of the stormy weather, this icebreaker was constantly being forced up and down 20, 30 feet because of the waves. So if you imagine you're fishing and you've got a fish at the end of the hook, but that, that fish is a submarine, it's constantly going up and down and it's pivoting as it goes up so it was like a kind of a really violent roller coaster for them and they're terrified because every move, every motion of the submarine they're smashing about inside but they also think that the hooks are going to come off and they're going to plummet down to the bottom also communications breaking up so at one point they're shouting for them to stop the lift they can't get it to stop the other guys think they want to continue there's a lot of confusion and then they stop at one point when the curve, which is the kind of American system, that submarine is, has, has wrapped up around at one point the Pisces, so that they're lifting both at once. Um, it all gets very confusing and very kind of stressful. But at one point um, they stop, and that's because they get to about 120 feet from the surface, and Messervey decides we've got to get another line on there. Once it gets to the surface, it's going to get heavier. So there's a great situation where they send down the divers to try and attach another another rope to it. And it's Bob, um, I don't know, who was it? Bob Hanley. Bob Hanley is sent down as a diver with one of his colleagues with a hook. And the idea is, as he described it, it's trying to land in a bucking bronco. So the submarine itself is thrashing about, moving up and down, and he's got to time his dive. So that he can land on it and and effectively straddle it like you would a bucking bronco while it's it's moving up and down with the waves at the top, and he's holding a, a, a the rope with this kind of um, hook that he's trying to sort of wedge. And in fact, that's not it. What it is is it's a it's a a, a really thick rope attached to a U curve with a bolt attached to it, and the bolt's attached to a string. And what he has to do is he has to get the the U bend of the of the metal sort of effectively, under um, the top of the submarine. Then he has to screw in a bolt,
0: like like a carabiner, to sort of close exactly. off the opening. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. Um, and all while underwater at one hundred and twenty feet on a submarine that's thrashing about, and it's an incredibly tense moment. But he manages to get it on, and. Um, they effectively send in another rope um, and so we're in a position where there's all these three ropes pulling up and finally um they make it to the surface with uh, yeah a, a, a very tense moment
0: okay so they get to the surface and then there's still complications then right like getting the the hatch open and yeah yeah
1: malice always remembers that that he just they, they were they, they bled in more oxygen
0: but oh, didn't they when did they eat the, the, the sandwich pressure.
1: Well, uh, good question. I think they ate it at some point, but they, they certainly they celebrated with the, they cracked open the, the the corona lemonade as soon as they were found that was their deal, is that they wouldn't open the lemonade until they were found, so they cracked open the the lemonade then, and as as Malison said remember because of everything they'd be going on it can taste like shit, you know, but you know shit never tasted <laughs> too, so sweet um given the, given the conditions they were in um but when they got to the surface they were uh, mountain remembers it very vividly they just they couldn't get the, the actual um, hatch open so he was kind of kicking it um and lying on the bottom and kicking the the, the surface of the
0: well, even of though, the hatch. even though they're at the surface this doesn't give them any more oxygen or any more co2 scrubbing right you could be sealed in on yeah, the top of Everest, exactly. and it would be precisely the same as being at the bottom exactly, of the ocean.
1: Exactly, exactly, exactly. They've got to get that hatch open to get fresh air in. Finally, bang, the kind of hatches, hatch is open. And as, there's a lovely moment where, where effectively they said that they had the, the, the first argument of, of, of the whole time they were down there was then when the hatch was open. Mallinson was the pilot, and Mallinson's argument was that he should be the last person out because he's pilot, he's responsible for the craft. Chapman is much wiser because they're in a storm. You know the, the waves are thrashing about, and as Chapman um, says to Mallon, says to Roger, "Roger, you can't swim." So that was his argument. The that that, 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 that Mallinson should be the first person out of the submarine on the grounds that if water floods in, at least Chapman um, can swim because Mallinson's never never learned to swim. Um, so eventually, they finally get they get them out, um, and you know it's yeah they they. they and what what's very touching is that I, when I was writing the book to people and I was writing about the book, what they'd been rescued by this idea of the Brotherhood of the sea. All these other vessels had come to their aid. Men had come from Canada, from California, from the North Sea, from Ireland. everyone had pulled together, and for this uh, three day period, the kind of world was waiting you know with bated breath to find out could these men be be, be rescued. It was akin to the situation a couple of years back with the with, with the, the school party trapped in the cave. Um, and I think Thailand it was um, where you're waiting to see could they could they be rescued and, and and they were rescued, but for the men on board who toiled for so long on Vickers voyage, they were on the on, on the edge of the ship looking out, and when they saw the surf the, the sub hit the surface and finally see these guys climb out, you know there was people just bursting into tears. I mean these were men who'd never you know as I'd said their eyes had been parched for decades, you know they just didn't cry about anything, but it was just the overwhelming emotion of. Of willing something to happen and for so many things to go wrong, um, they finally they finally got them to the surface and it's a, and that was part of the reason why I wanted to write the book was was obviously there was the experience of the men on board, but it was also to, to capture all these characters who'd been who were in danger of being lost to history. You know, like kind of Al Trice, like Ted Carter, Bob Hanley, all these people who you guys who who um, who devised the the, the toggles. Um, and you know, when you speak to Ted Carter today, I mean, he's very blase about it. He just said he helped. You know, but it's you, you. They did they did remarkable things, uh, Larry Brady in 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 California. So that was it. It was everyone had pulled together to, to pull off this incredible rescue. And when you consider everything that had gone wrong, even to the point where, at one point, they needed new rope, and the the, the Navy who were out there um, ferried rope across on um, a kind of wire basket, effectively underneath a helicopter, but they misjudged the weight of the rope. So as soon as the helicopter took off and started flying toward uh, Voyager, um, they could see the helicopter immediately start be- being dragged down to the to to the sea. So they suddenly, the, the helicopter pilot had to jettison the rope and um, suddenly the rope's tumbling down and Al Trice is on the deck of Voyager with Peter Messierbe looking out at the rope they're supposed to get and suddenly the rope's just bobbing across the, the surface of the Atlantic. And Al Trice had a motto that he used to he used to say and his attitude was, well, if it was easy, everyone would do it. And this was a rescue that was far from easy.
0: How close to the wire was it? With resources and oxygen and that well, stuff. Well, it, it, it's complicated because
1: because afterwards, if you if you see there's this little footage of them on YouTube talking about when they finally touched down on on um, on on Korg, and they're very stiff upper lip British. Everything's fine. Oh, we've plenty of resources. It was very comfortable at one point. They say on this on on the bottom. Uh, it was very comfortable, um, and the report was that they could have gone for a number of hours afterwards. However, the people I spoke to, um, who who had first hand experience of it, one of them said that it was his job to to inspect the submarine when it was finally brought back to Cork, and he was on boat on. He went into the submarine with the the kind of US kind of um, um, authority. His job is to monitor safety for submarines. And they said he remembers two things very vividly. One was the stench of the place, <laughs> uh, the, the stench of the submarine. And the second thing was that when they turned on the oxygen, just nothing came out. His attitude was that they were just absolutely down to the wire. Minutes. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we'll, we'll never know exactly how much it's, it's, it's too, 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 it's too, it's too powered back to, to tell. But his attitude was that there was, there was nothing left.
0: Yeah, the video of the Rogers talking about it, wasn't. doesn't one of them say what was the worst part of it and he said coming back up? Yes,
1: yeah. And I think that's because a lot of what they say is very much you know that can stiff up our, up, up our British lips saying it's, it's fine. And you have to kind of, knowing what, having put together the book, knowing what preceded it, we can now understand why that was because it was, I mean, they're being rescued, but it took two hours to get them to the surface and they were being smashed about for a, a good chunk of that. And when they weren't being smashed about, they were hanging like a, like a fish in a hook, unaware what was happening. And all the time, they know they're at the very limit of, of, of what oxygen's left. So it's that thing where when you look at all the components that had to be in place for them to be rescued, the curve being flown over from California, the Pisces flying over from Halifax, the team coming over from the North Sea, and when you look at all the things that went wrong, All you have to think about is another link in that chain being delayed or another problem or something that, you know, like, imagine it took, it was four hours to fix the curve um, electrics to get the sub down. Imagine it took four and a half or five. I mean, they were that close because it wasn't that case of it took a long time to get for the rescue to begin. And then the rescue went really smoothly. (laughs) Literally everything that could have gone wrong with the rescue did go wrong. But they still managed to get them up, and that was—it's that kind of—it's that great line from Winston Churchill: "Never, ever, ever give up." And I think that this rescue is a
0: testament to that. What did the guys do after this? Did they go back to the sea? Did any of them yeah, descend yeah. again?
1: Yeah, both of them, but within within a few weeks they were they were back in the submarine. In lads, um, uh, such but, lads. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mallinson's attitude was—you know he need to. You know, it was there was errors, but he, he wanted to, to to get back on, onto the submarine. And Chapman did it for a spell, but then Chapman used his experiences to set up a company that that, that developed um, rescue for submarines. So t- so Chapman went on to, to to take his experience and turn it into a very successful business um, that was involved in the that was called upon, but not used tragically for the Kursk disaster, but then was called upon to to rescue another um, Russian submarine. Um, you know, in the you know, I think it was ten, twelve years ago. So um, yeah, he had an amazing experience from it.
0: Commercialised his yeah, catastrophe.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But what was what was very very special about it was that the, the, the bond between the two remained up until I mean, um, tra- um, Roger Chapman sadly died. Um, a year ago in January, I think it was. Um, but up until up, up until the, the, the September before, on the day of the rescue, Mallinson would phone him at the same at the, at the, the exact moment that they were rescued, just after one o'clock on, on the anniversary. And then afterwards, at a certain point, they would meet for lunch on that day uh, every year. So th- there was a kind of very close bond that existed as a consequence of of the rescue and their experiences down there in the deep.
0: Did you get to speak to them?
1: Um I got to speak to Mallinson a lot, and um, but sadly Roger Chapman had had died before I began researching the book. Um but I spoke to his widow, June Chapman, who was very supportive and his and his two sons who were very supportive and, and I interviewed Mallinson a lot for the book, along with the as many as the rescuers who, who were who were still alive. So it was a great pleasure to, to to speak to them and to also to feel like to try and effectively illuminate this story which has been been largely forgotten, but it is an incredible tale of, of, of heroine and also that element of 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 what you can do if, if a team pulls together.
0: There's something sort of specially nostalgic and kind of beautiful about it because, as you say, it was the analog age, probably just toward the end of it. But if well, uh, yeah, go ahead. It, no,
1: it's, it's interesting to see that when I was researching the book, I discovered that um, this was 73 when the Cantac cable w- w- was laid, and as I said, 175 phone calls could be made at any point. But in that same year, the first mobile phone call was made. Um, it was by by one developer to another to his competitor effectively to say that he was that they were ahead of the game and and, and it's one of these one of my regrets actually I didn't use it as a footnote somewhere because it was effectively, I just kind of liked the touch of that so there was it was it was an analogue age but it was the, also the year that the future I mean the future's birthday year effectively but there was that kind of nice touch but yeah I mean it was this was this was men in boiler suits with T squares. Um, uh, trying to fix things. So, I mean, even the device, the toggle that that rescued them, I mean, that was designed on paper with T with squares and manufactured in a, in a few hours. In fact, in a, a nice touch that would appeal to an ealing comedy. When they went over to the fabrication unit, having designed this rescue toggle, they spoke to the foreman and said, "We've got to make this building." He looked and said, "Yeah, look, we can start it next week." Um, and he said, "No, no, that, we did this." So he put them on to Leonard uh, Redshaw. And Redshoff, in no uncertain terms, told them that it would be made today, in fact, this afternoon. And they said, all right, why didn't you say? So they, they, they made it in, in, the, in the space of a few hours.
0: Didn't the Queen contact the guys at one point?
1: <laughs> well, that was the great thing. They get a message um, garbled down from the phone that that, that Queen Elizabeth is is, is thinking well of you. And, they, and this was very moving to them because um, Chapman had served in the Royal Navy. So you serve say of her majesty effectively and Mallinson was also deeply moved this idea that at, at this hour their kind of you know darkest hour the queen the monarch you know Britannia effectively was thinking well of them and it, it kept them going but it was only until they got to the surface a couple of days later that what it was was it was the QE2 had been steaming past and had offered to assist but that assistance wasn't required but they said look wish the men well so, so it wasn't the, the queen at all. No, it wasn't the queen. It was the QE two. Um, but but the, the message that they got and that helped sustain them was that it was the queen herself that that was that was wishing them well. So it's best they didn't know.
0: I'm sure that she would have done as well. Yeah the um I think the, so. the video of the guys coming out and the interview with them afterward is peak hard British guy from sort of the mid 1900s. No, it was it was. Mostly fine down there. I, I, we could have survived for another, you know, another day yeah. or so. It was Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, it's it's um it's I suppose that's what's fascinating about it, is that kind of age where um you you mean okay what was interesting about it is they both gave quite moving interviews, one to the telegraph, one to the mail about a week or so later. But it was that it's not the days where um people it's effectively kind of the cameras brought out please emote and please emote copiously. Um it wasn't like that at all. It was it was how it was that very British thing of um, I've gone through the greatest trauma of my life, but how do I minimise it? Um, to... It was but
0: a scratch. Yeah, exactly. Yes,
1: yes. Um, but that's the benefit of, 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 of putting together a book like The Dive, whereby you can you can lay it out. It's only effectively when you, you lay it out chronologically in as much detail as I've been able to do, where you show everything going wrong and, and then what's put in, in, in place to, to rectify that. And even remarkable people like, as I say, kind of um, Ted Carter. I spoke to him about it. So his, I mean, he was down in the submarine. Everything had gone wrong. His his colleagues' lives are effectively, literally, in his hands because he's the man who's who's manipulating this toggle, and he has to get it in. And I asked him about the pressure of that, and in the book I refer to the fact that I mean, it's, there's like fifty tons of pressure bearing down on the submarine, but internally there should be the same amount bearing down on him. He was very blase about it, you know. He just said, "No, I'm not." Some people are just built that way; that they're very under under. At times of great crisis, they are. They can be very relaxed and very focused. And he was one of those kind of characters whereby he had a job to do, he managed to get it done.
0: Right and man for the job.
1: Helps, yeah, and saved and saved his colleague's life along with the the rest of the team.
0: Amazing, man! That's such a fascinating story. I think you've done an awesome job with the book. That'll be linked. The dive will be linked on Amazon below. Any other bits? If people want to learn more about this,
1: yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Just buy it, buy the dive, um, and that, that, that's the best way to do it. Um, but I mean, it's a it is a fascinating story, and and also what I was glad because also in the book I tell the story of well, there's a, a section where I talk about the development of submarines, but also. The, the lane of the cable back in the kind of 18, 1850s and sixties, um, this great kind of nautical journey to try and lo- connect the old world and the new is quite an, an amazing story, and they were this little part of it further down the line. But it's no, it's I mean, I'm I'm I'm, I'm I hope people will read it because it's it is one of those situations whereby um, it's just the ability of people not giving in, and uh, and a team of, of a team of men um, rescuing their colleagues
0: beautiful story Stephen McGinty ladies and gentlemen thanks so much for your time no thank you very much